Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Stephen Brook. Stephen is an internationally recognized leader in the photography of architecture, landscape, and interior design. He has produced over 40 books on architecture and design, including his highly acclaimed Views of Rome and Views of Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Photographed in the tradition of the 18th and 19th century view painters of Europe, these books were the first of their kind in decades. Stephen won the Distinguished Rome Prize from the American Academy in Rome and is a fellow of the Albright Institute in Jerusalem. He is the winner of the American Institute of Architects National Honor Award for Photography and is the recipient of two Grand Foundation grants for his work. Finally, he is an adjunct professor at the University of Miami School of Architecture, where he currently teaches courses on architectural photography and composition. Welcome to On City, Stephen. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Stephen, you grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in a very creative household. Tell us about your early childhood experiences and the ways that they shaped your views about cities. Well, first of all, growing up in Detroit, Detroit was a very exciting city. It's a beautiful town plan, and Boston Boulevard and Chicago Boulevard are still two of the most beautiful streets I've ever seen. There were a lot of Art Deco buildings in Detroit, and it is a French town plan, much like Washington, D.C. So there were these beautiful architectural moments all throughout the city. And I came to appreciate that in a number of ways. One, my mother was an opera singer and a concert pianist, and she was at the Eastman School of Music when she was nine years old. She was musically eidetic, and she had an incredible work ethic. As as brilliant as she was, she worked harder than anybody I had ever seen. And one of her very very close friends was Frederick Cleveland Test, who was a thoracic surgeon. He was also a concert level pianist and had the most incredible photographic memory, the likes of which I've never seen. And he had an encyclopedic knowledge of art and art history, of botany, of astronomy. And when I was about six, seven years old, my mother more or less turned me over to him to have him educate me as my mentor. And he kindled my interest in art, teaching me about perspective drawing, about 17th century Dutch painters and engravers. And he also kindled my interest in science 
And one of the things that he always said, he believed that the origin of life was one of the thorniest problems. And he wondered if biologists were ever going to solve that problem. And that notion carried me through for my own research in science. But I think growing up in Detroit, also my mother's, one of my mother's best friends was the architect Yamasaki's number one interior designer. And so I got to meet her and I was taken to Cranbrook. And so all of these wonderful influences that were around Detroit were all made available to me. And, and it influenced my outlook because I, I saw saw these things at such an early age and was taught their value at an early age. So you, in, in listening to you describe those early years, you were surrounded um, by artists, surrounded by individuals that were passionate, I guess maybe not just in the arts, but in the sciences. And so you didn't see these as being adversarial, but rather complementary. Not at all. And and Frederick Cleveland Test, MD, who was a, a surgeon and a pianist and an art historian, he made it clear that you should, as a well-rounded person, be involved in all of those. He said, yes, you can be a scientist, but keep your interest up in art and keep your interest up in music. And as it turned out, that was really um, providential for me because uh, I did have a career in science and then transition to something else. Yeah, actually, we're going to talk a little bit about that now. But I think what you're saying is particularly important in a world that is promoting sort of a hyper specialization. Um, while that can afford us great um, opportunities in the world, I think the ability to have a well-rounded education and be curious about many things, I think, in the long run, might be one of the most fruitful um, ways to to lead a life. Um, and so let's go to this um, kind of early choice in careers, because uh, today we're going to be talking about your work as an architectural photographer, but you were trained as a molecular biologist, um, researching chemical evolution and the origin of cells. So how did you make the leap into architectural photography? Can you tell us about this trajectory? Well, I'd always had a camera. And I had a view camera in college, so I knew how to, that, that was the tool for architectural photography. But I started my graduate work at the National, National Institutes of Health in D.C. And when I had an opportunity to come to Miami to work with Sidney Fox, who was one of the pioneers on work on chemical evolution, origin of life, origin of cells, I jumped at the chance to come down here to do that. And while I was doing my research, I was fortunate we got to work on the first moon rock project in 69. And I was able to publish work early in my science career. So I felt accomplished. But after a couple of years down here, I met an extraordinary artist named Jeannie Welsh. And meeting Jeannie and seeing her work rekindled my desire to start producing artwork again. And I was familiar with, with Miro and Clay, and I had a microscope and a camera set up that I was using for my research. And I just turned to looking at the microscopic world, microscopic landscapes, and started producing photomicrographs for their own sake. And I had nothing to do with my research. They were just beautiful. And I had a show at the Museum of Science and I wanted to show them to somebody. And everybody said, you need to show them to Dennis Jenkins, 
who is an interior designer and probably the most innovative interior designer in Miami. I showed him the work. He loved it. We started specking it for projects like at Southeast Bank Corporation. I went ahead to photograph my own installations with my view camera. And I almost casually said to Dennis, I said, Dennis, why don't I shoot some of your regular work? And he said, yeah, that would be a great idea. And one of the first projects was a Southeast Banking Corporation, uh, a big branch bank that he did with Suzanne Martinson. And this won a national award. And the phone started ringing and people started calling me to photograph their projects. And, you know, the Chinese say luck is opportunity meeting preparation. Well, I had this art historical background, thanks to Cleve Tess. I had a view camera that I knew how to use. And the career almost took over. And so I felt I had accomplished what I wanted in the sciences. And I decided to go fully into architectural photography. I had clients, really good ones, right from the beginning, Dennis introduced me to Ben Baldwin, to uh, really wonderful architects and designers. I started working with Architectural Digest in 1986 and was with them for 22 years until Paige Rents retired. Through Digest, I got to meet Bob Stern, Hugh Jacobson. I did a book with Philip Johnson on his houses. So I never looked back. And I think that my scientific training made it possible for me to do something as technically involved as architectural photography. Yeah. I think having a science background in that kind of discipline was really, really helped me a lot. What um, do you think sets architectural photography apart, maybe from other types of photography? Well, there, there are a couple of things. One is that it's a centuries old tradition of composition and architectural depiction. And looking at work of, of Piranesi and Vermeer, you know what the paradigms were. And also it's important to know that for architecture, for photographing architecture, for the most part, people will know those buildings through the photographs. Generally, they won't get to see the building. So you have that responsibility. The other thing is, if you are around architects and know what it takes to get a project built, that between the between the, the kernel of the idea and the final project, there are owners, there are contractors, there are building and zoning. It's amazing anything gets built. And so as an architectural photographer, you come in at the end and it's your chance to come back to that architect's ideal. And maybe usually they don't get paid enough for what they've done. This is their one payment that they have is they have a great set of photographs of their project that again goes back to the ideal. And because of that, I, I personally find current styles of of architectural photography in magazines where it's offhanded, you show up anytime, the windows get blown out. If the skies don't look good, it doesn't matter. All that stuff does matter. And I guess I'm really traditional when I I I am going back to the to the 17th century Dutch as my models. And people that I worked with at Architectural Digest, we all believed in that. And we all tried to get the images as as perfect as we could. And especially for the sake of the architect and and getting that final 
set of photographs that reflect the original idea. Yeah, and, and you know, as a practicing architect, and I've had the good fortune of having you photograph um, some of our work. Uh, I remember being told early on that even if you don't have a budget as an architect, you have to make a budget to get good photographs of your work. Um, so I will attest to how important documenting that work as a practitioner is. So, you know, maybe we could turn specifically to discuss um, some of your projects. Um, I, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on your book, The Views of Rome, which was the result of the work that you completed as a fellow in the American Academy of Rome. And in it, you set out to re-photograph contemporary Rome, but in the manner of the great 18th century view maker, Giovanni Battista Piranesi. I think for many of our listeners, um, I would like um, if you could describe who was Piranesi and how did the structure of his work inspire you to produce your stunning contemporary images of the eternal city? Well, there were other people who documented Rome, like Falda and Vasi, but Piranesi was probably the most innovative. And he, his views of Rome were so monumental that people who only saw those views, when they finally got to Rome, they were a little disappointed because they thought, well, these buildings don't look like Piranesi engraved them. And so his was a style of, of engraving that had deep shadows, high contrast. They were really beautiful. And I started looking around Rome with, with excuse me, with Piranesi's um, views of Rome in hand. And it didn't take me long at the academy. I went there thinking I was possibly going to do something else research-wise. And I decided what I needed to do was my own views of Rome. I'm going to hang my shingle up next to everybody else who had come before and Rossini did a views of Rome in late 1800s, 1890 something. And from that point to when I arrived there, there had not been a complete views of Rome. And there certainly hadn't been anything in modern Rome in the, uh, in EUR or in Foro Italica. And I wanted to include those buildings as part of Rome. And I, again, I shot those in the same tradition that I did everything else following the style that I had had believed to be the right way to photograph architecture. I His views were a starting point, but Piranesi, because he was an engraver, he did multiple, he did what we call multiple perspectives. He would take something from the right, something from the middle, something from the left, which you had to turn your head to see. He put them all in one engraving, they, kind of an aid memoir. And, and he was providing artwork to the people who were on the grand tour. He was basically doing what postcards and posters do and, and guidebooks do. He was providing aid memoirs for people to take back home. And I looked at his work and I studied it. I saw how he would, would manipulate perspective, but I was using a camera. So in some ways, there were certain limitations that I had that he didn't have. And again, this was all shot on film. None of this was digital. So you had to get it right in the camera. You, there was no post-production. And so I used that as a starting point. 
So those images plus views of Rome, that that was published, I think, in 94, 95 by Rizzoli. And that was the first of its kind in, in, in almost 100 years. When you say first of its kind for our listeners, first of, first of its kind in providing a kind of comprehensive yes, collection right. of views. Exactly. Ancient Rome, Christian Rome, modern Rome, all the main edifices, all the main churches, including church interiors, everything that was important to the history of Rome. And Stephen, um, I this was a project that I believe you worked on over the course of a year. Is that correct? Almost two years because I went back after my fellowship year at the Academy. I went back in 92 to finish it up. I didn't get everything done. So as soon as I got back in 92, I got my Motorino packed up and finished and finish the work. So let me, um, if you could briefly describe what it was like to set up a shop. So say, I don't know, the Pantheon, um, which is one of the most recognized images of ancient Rome. How would you go about setting up that shop? Well, the, the first part is knowing that back when I was working in Rome, the carabinieri, the police, did not like to see people out on the street with a camera and a tripod. That was was not allowed. And so I needed to get very formal-looking permissions, permessi, from all manner of uh, bureaus in Rome to be able to be out on the street with a, a camera, with a big view camera and a tripod. So that was chore number one. Because even with the permission slips, you got that finger wagging when they told you no, which meant that if you wanted to get that shot, you needed to be out there before the Carabinieri got there. And there were places like Rome and uh, like the Pantheon and uh, the Farnese, uh, which was the French embassy, the Farnese Palace. You had to get there ahead of them or time it so no one made, made their turn. You jumped out and got your shot. The other thing that I was concerned with was I wanted for my own purposes, the least number of people in my shots. I wanted to make really iconic images. So I shot them in black and white to reduce contemporary intrusions of color, but I also wanted them as clean as I could get them. So the timing was really important. And I also wanted those kind of magical times of day that you get really early in the morning when the when there's still a little bit of moisture in the air, it hasn't burned off. And it gives a, a romance to the images from what you feel being there, not just not just as a an artistic artifact, but but you want to have a photo that looks like what it feels like. And very often that's not hard sun, middle of the day, hard shadows. It's something else. And so that's what I tried to do in, in these shots. Yeah. Well, for anyone who hasn't seen this collection of uh, photographs, the book, I would highly recommend it. I mean, it says, um, I think you're you're right to say that there's a timeless quality to the images. So by sh sh uh, shooting them in black and white and shooting them absent of, let's say, many people that might give away the time based on how they're they're dressed, you know, your images. Uh, I got criticized for that, by the way. People say, well, how can you <laughs> criticize to not criticize for not having a lot of people in the shots? But one of the reasons is I didn't want them dated. Yeah. Um, if you have people in contemporary clothes, it dates your shot. And again, I was trying for something timeless. Yeah. 
And whether I succeeded or not, that depends on how, you know, someone looking at it, they say, well, yeah, you did or you didn't. But that's one of the things I wanted to do. I didn't want a lot of people around because when there are lots of people, you as a viewer, your eye goes to the people. I wanted your eye to go straight to the architecture and the way in which I had photographed it. So actually, um, I'm... After the Rome series, um, you were later inspired um, to produce the views of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, um, where you you followed what what I understand to be a similar format. But how did photographing Jerusalem differ from documenting Rome? Two big differences. One, Rome Rome is you're photographing the sites of celebration. Jerusalem is where this happened. So it's the architecture is not as important because it sort of came later, but you are faced with centuries of veneration and you need to respond to that. And that's especially true in the landscape and in the archaeological areas. Because if you don't do that right, if you don't do that with some understanding and feeling and reaction to what you know to have been centuries of veneration, you end up with pictures of rocks. And I wanted more than that. So when you photograph like the Hinnom Valley or you photograph the um, Mount of Olives or you, you photograph the Sea of Galilee, you need to pick your times of day that make you feel something else about that site that you wouldn't if you just shot it just any old time of day. And that was really important to me because I put myself in the position of a pilgrim. In Rome, I had a motorino. In Jerusalem, you walk around on foot. You carry your stuff on your back, and you, and it's arduous and like pilgrimage. And so I... With the help of Walter Zanger, who was a, a artist, architect, historian, he said he he said I should do views of Jerusalem and the roads, the defense roads that led to Jerusalem. So I included uh, areas going from Jericho in, from from Ashkelon in, um, from the Wadi Kelt in, and confined it to that. Aspect, but the landscape is so important. The landscape is so numinal. The landscape, so much of the history of Jerusalem has to do with its landscape, with its siding, more than any specific buildings. And so you do the stations of the cross, you're in contemporary streets, but you need to frame those in a certain way that gives somebody looking at those a sense of what it would be like to walk the Via Dolorosa. And so that was part of the challenge of doing views of Jerusalem and the Holy Land. So in hearing you describe it, would you say that the photographs were more sequential, you know, so they had to be seen more as a kind of series when you well, talk about pilgrimage, maybe a little bit different than, um, let's say, Rome that might have been organized by way of period? Yes, absolutely. Because it, it Jerusalem is an amalgamation. There's everything in there. Um, all that architecture is all jammed together. And so the gates of Jerusalem, that's one kind of thing. Um, the, the walls around Jerusalem, the views from Jerusalem to Mount Zion and to the Mount of Olives. Again, it was framed around the landscape more than it was 
a particular period of time, like Rome was, was classical, was ancient Rome, Christian Rome, modern Rome. This was, this was different. This was orient that it was presented in a way that followed pilgrimage, mm -hmm. whether it was Jewish pilgrimage or Christian pilgrimage or Muslim pilgrimage. That's how, that's how I organized the book. And Stephen, if you had, let's say, Piranesi's engravings as a guide for you in the production of the images for um, the Views of Rome book, did you have any references um, or any inspirations as it relates directly to the Views of Jerusalem? There were actually, there were engravers in Jerusalem, people like William Bartlett and um, really wonderful painters like David Roberts. Interestingly, the engravers came just at the time when photography kicked in. And people looking at engravings versus looking at photographs felt that the photographs had more veracity because the engravings came from someone's mind, come from their imagination. But by God, the photons bounced off of the holy area directly onto the film plane. And that was thought to be closer to the truth of the site than an engraving was. And basically photography took over. Once it, once wet plates, glass plates were around, you could tote that stuff around Jerusalem and the whole area and do photographs. And that kind of took over the documentation. Mm. Well, we are coming to the, the break. Um, and uh, when we return, we're going to continue to speak with Stephen uh, about uh, his body of work and also delve into the key factors um, that he uses in composing a great architectural photograph. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with architectural photographer Stephen Brook. Prior to the break, we were speaking to him about his um, excellent books, The Views of Rome and The Views of Jerusalem, where he documents two of the greatest cities in the world. Um, but now I'd like to turn to another one of his publications, which is actually a, a manual for architectural photography and composition that serves as a complete guide to the practice, techniques, and history of depicting architecture, interiors, and landscape. So, Stephen, what would you say are the key factors in composing a great shot? I know you have some golden rules. Yeah, we have so, hardcore rules. So can you share those with us? Well, the first one, the the sort of prime directive of, of professional architectural photography is to align the verticals, is to get the verticals parallel to the picture plane and not out of whack. Nothing separates professional-looking architectural photographs from everything else than having the verticals out of alignment. That's really rule number one. I also recommend using axial compositions like the Dutch did. That is to say the primary horizontals are parallel to the picture plane to give stability to even the most complicated subject matter. The next thing is to, this is particularly important for using a camera with wide angle lenses, because those things distort really easily, is to control your eye height. Usually, most photographs are too high. People take them too high up. And the result is you get photographs where the foreground is diving below, you know, out from under you, like in The Shining. And my general rule is that the wider the lens, the lower should be the eye height. And the next thing is to control the shadows. And that means picking the precise time of day when everything is correctly delineated. Shadows give depth, give articulation, and give rhythm to a photograph. And again, I I said this before, there is a trend in, in shelter magazines for shooting almost any time of day, sort of forgetting this idea about shadow control. And I think this is a mistake. I think the work that results from that is pretty artless. And I don't think it does the architecture any good. And it, it it's not really professional, sensitive depiction. I think it's kind of indifferent. And then the last thing, which you couldn't say if you were shooting film because there was no post-production, is that 
everything in the image must be compositional. Even Leonardo said, what doesn't help the composition hurts the composition. So that means you can go in post-production and really clean the image, get rid of lines, get rid of garbage, get rid of stains. And some people say, well, that isn't real. Well, it's a photograph to begin with. You're having a three-dimensional world and you're translating that into two dimensions. So no, it's not real. It is a photograph. It is a depiction. It is an abstraction of the real thing. And so I tell my students, everything must be compositional. Any little thing that that shouldn't be there at the edges of the image, you need to take all that stuff out and make the images as clean and as pure as possible, as if you were painting them or engraving them. Actually, let me um, just go back because I was curious when you were talking about the contr controlling the shadows yeah. and a kind of critique that pictures are taken at any any time today. So what, what would be the optimal times to take photographs? I would imagine, obviously, it would depend on location. But just let's say, since we're in Miami, optimal times to take a photograph in the tropical world to get the best shadows possible. Well, in our Miami, generally, we have deep shadows. We have high contrast, especially in the winter months. You have a low sun angle. So midday is usually not a good time to take a photograph because the sun is up high. You get a lot more haze. And early morning is wonderful. That light is gorgeous. Late afternoon. And then, for example, North elevations are a particular problem because in the in the winter, the sun rises and sets south of the east-west line. So there's never sun on the north elevation. So if you have a key north elevation, you either convince your client to shoot this thing in the summer or you go early, early morning or late in the afternoon or do a night shot to be able to get a north elevation. I look at overhangs. I look at where I want that shadow to be. And I time my shot to get that shadow as if I were painting or engraving it. I said, where do I want that shadow? And I will wait to get it just right. Okay, so these are, are I think, great uh, rules of thumb. Um, and for, for any amateur photographers out there or aspiring photographers, um, I think you could hear much more of this in Stephen's book, Architectural Photography and Composition, that I believe you can purchase through your website. Right? Yes, you can go to stephenbrookphotography.com. And this is a real bargain. This This will cost you less than a Starbucks coffee and a bagel. And if, if you're interested in doing architectural photography, or if you've done a little and, and want to get back, this is, I think, the single book that you could own that will have everything in there. And uh, it's an ebook, but it's printable. You can print out the workflows, you can print out anything. Okay, so maybe shifting a bit from technique, I'd like to return to the work itself um, and to state that architectural photography can serve as a powerful tool for advocacy and preservation as it draws attention to buildings and landscapes that are in danger of being lost or altered. Um, Stephen, can you tell us a bit about um, the work that you've done, really where your photography has served as a tool for advocacy and preservation? Well, I'm fortunate to have been involved in preservation efforts in Miami, going back to the Art Deco District. I work with Barbara Kapitman. But 
One one thing that were two things actually. One, I was invited to Sharjah in February of 2022 as part of Exposure uh, 22. That the UAE gathered who they consider the 50 leading photographers in the world and bring them all together to give workshops and presentations and all. And I was surrounded by photojournalists who really weaponized photography in service of humanitarian issues, whether it was climate or animal uh, cruelty, just they used photography like a spear and aimed it at people's consciousness to make them aware of issues that they might not be aware of. There were also brilliant, brave um, conflict zone photographers like Yana Andard and Jim Natchway, who put themselves in harm's way to get photographs of really horrific situations so that people know actually what's going on. And I came back from there thinking I needed to do more. I needed to use my photography the way in in a field that I had some some say in, and that was in photographing historic neighborhoods. And there are historic neighborhoods in Miami that aren't that old. I mean, if you're from Boston, you have two and three hundred year old buildings. But Miami's architectural heritage is a hundred years old. I mean, from the 30s, from the 20s, there are some some things that are in the late 1800s, not a lot of them, but you start losing those buildings. You start losing an irreplaceable architectural heritage. And again, if you come from up north or you come from Europe, it's a tougher sell because they don't understand why you're so concerned about a building that's 50, 60 years old. And so seeing that these buildings were under threat, I decided I really need to go full tilt on this project to photograph the Miami historic neighborhoods before before they're gone. And so let me ask you, did this shift towards um, the hyper local focus or these um, Miami neighborhoods, which I know is a project you're currently working on, was this the result of the pandemic? I mean, obviously, you just talked about um, this group exhibition that you participated in right. um, and, and the effect that that had. But was it also exacerbated by the pandemic that prevented you from traveling? No, not not so much for that. What what made me aware of how dire the situation was, was climate change, flooding, coastal um, flooding, climate-induced migration. And if people are leaving the coast because they don't want to go underwater, they're going to start moving into areas that are delicate, that are not protected by national registry. And they're vulnerable. These are neighborhoods that are 100 years old. I was photographing in West Coconut Grove, and I talked to a guy whose great-grandfather from the Bahamas built this little cottage, and it was still there. And that little cottage had survived every hurricane that hit Miami. And looking up and down the street, I'm thinking, it would be a shame to lose these buildings. But if you look over your shoulder, you will see large-scale development coming your way. And part of that is because 
climate-induced migration. People aren't stupid. They're going to they're going to move from areas that are going to get flooded, and they're moving inland into these lovely little neighborhoods, beautiful scale. I mean, they're humane scale, and they can be lost. And this is this is not this isn't good. This is a a bad thing for the city and a bad thing for the community. We need to keep these neighborhoods in, we need to hang on to these neighborhoods. They are part of our architectural heritage. So that's part of what I'm doing. It is an ongoing project. I don't, if I had the funding, I would put an army of my best students out there with me, photographing more of these neighborhoods I haven't been able to get to, but, but we're doing it. We're, this is, this is going to go on as long as I'm as long as I'm an architectural photographer, we are going to continue to photograph these neighborhoods. And obviously, photographing them um, is a project in and of itself because they will remain um, at the very least, and hopefully not the only record of these neighborhoods. But so that's a problem, isn't it? Because the photos may be all that's left. I have photographs of buildings on Miami Beach, like the New Yorker Hotel that was at Harry Hohauser. There was a masterwork. There are photographs. I have my photographs of it. There is no more building. They came at five in the morning with a wrecking ball and took that thing down. And there are areas in uh, Coral Gables where I live, and I noticed the 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 dreaded green fencing around a couple of whole blocks. And they are going to be taking down these low rise apartment buildings that were affordable, and they're going to build things that are are not affordable. They say, well, that's life. Sure, it's life, but I want people to understand that's a loss. Yeah, That's I mean, something irreplaceable. So um, in, as part of this effort, are, are you joining forces? I mean, it's inevitable that as cities densify and as they evolve, uh, there's going to be uh, some loss as well as you know, some can argue gains by what comes forth, but are you are you aligning with any others in the city um, so that the photographs will not just serve as an archive, but could could promote, you know, some political change? Well, I work with Date Heritage Trust. I've been working with Chris Rupp, who's the director there. I work with Megan McLaughlin and her company, Plus Service. We're doing historic surveys, um, Plus Service produces books on a, on a regular basis on these historic neighborhoods, site plan. I mean, they're wonderful documents. And hopefully they will, they may, it may not stem the tide of development, but it may give people a chance to reflect on whether there are some alternatives to the development that will also preserve some of these neighborhoods. I'm I'm not against progress. You you can't be because it's inevitable. That's foolish. But at least to have people think that possibly there are ways to develop and save some of these important neighborhoods. Other cities have done it. Sure. No, and and I think what you're arguing for is you know like. All, all great cities are great stories of the people and the places that shaped their history. And so how do we move forward in cities that are rapidly urbanizing while still maintaining and preserving some of the key, um, at least in this case, architectural uh, heritage that uh, allows us to be connected to our own stories. So I think it's very important work, the work that you're doing and, um, and, and these 
individuals that you've spoken of, uh, plus Erbia, Date Heritage Trust, have actually been long-standing members of the community that are arguing for the preservation of some of this important you know, the, uh, history. You 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 inch along, and and you make progress inch by inch by inch by inch. And if you stop, if you let up, I think that's a mistake. You have to keep on keeping the pressure on. And that I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I love working with my clients, but I think in the end, the work that I'm doing on the Historic Neighborhood Project, this is maybe the most important thing I could be doing with my time and my skills right now. Yeah. So maybe turning to, I mean, right now, the work that you're producing on the neighborhoods is all digitally produced, sure. right? Um, but And as you stated earlier, you began your career prior to the advent of digital photography. And at the onset, I believe that, or I recall hearing you speak about how apprehensive you were about embracing digital technologies. Um, now, of course, you have. So how has the, how have these new digital processes changed your, your outcomes or your techniques, if any? Well, I, I along with some of my uh, colleagues at Architectural Digest. We were the last to give up film. And it was, we weren't Luddites. We didn't think that the the cameras and the, the lenses would give us the quality that we got with large format film. That changed. And I, tr- well, first I tried to put a digital back on my view, try to digital back on my view camera. That was an extremely expensive uh, enterprise. And I didn't think that the quality I would have gotten from that was $25,000 better than what I was getting from uh, a Canon camera that my friend Louis Feldman, who was a master portrait photographer, he let me use his camera. I went out and tried and shot a few things. I thought, this is perfectly acceptable. And Canon had really good perspective control lenses, which basically make a 35 millimeter camera function like a view camera. And Canon had good lenses. And so I said, okay, I am going to do that. And I jumped in, bought a whole new set of uh, digital gear and I had software chops anyway. And the thing that is wonderful is with digital, first of all, you know what you're shooting. You can, you actually can see what you're getting. You don't have this agony from when you hand in your film to when you get your film back to make sure you didn't screw up something and you got exactly what you wanted. The other thing is that it infinitely increased the amount of time available to do shots because you could do multiple exposures. You could do a photograph to see out of the window and another photograph to take the room and put them together and see the way your eye will see. This is a miracle. This changed photography. And you get ultimate control over your final project in a way that you never could with film. Now, I'm glad I trained with film. You had to get it right on that piece of film. Everything had to be perfect when you took the picture. I'm grateful for the discipline, but I wouldn't go back ever because of how much more I can do digitally. And now the cameras have phenomenal sensors and you can you have 
you end up with an image that that's almost too big to, to transfer to somebody by email. You have to make little JPEGs to do that. And the original files that you get from a, a, my cam, my the camera I have now, they're like 140 megabyte files. They're, that's huge. That's a brick. So I'm grateful for all of that. And when I said everything is compositional with digital, you can make everything compositional. It's a miracle. So, um, meaning you could correct those you verticals. Can correct you can correct the horizontal. Yes, everything can be corrected. You can make it perfect if you have the willpower to do that. Yeah, but you still need the the training of of I would argue the um, the the eye, right, to be sure. able to set up that shot. And yes. I think that some of what you've been discussing over the course of the conversation is the importance of history, the importance of references, of culture, sure. um, and technique, right? So, yes. um, I always think that the 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 camera and software technique that you can learn relatively quickly. And in my book, I try to make that as simple as possible. Here are a very simple workflow. This is what I do. I don't make it complicated. Where you need to spend the time is to increase your visual acuity, your visual intelligence. And that means studying great painters and engravers. And I keep coming back to that because that's where you learn to see. That's where you learn your sense of proportion and that's what will make you an excellent architectural photographer, not just the gear. You know what they say? It's not the wand that's the magician. Yeah, but I actually think those words are maybe even more poignant today with our kind of the mass production of images, right? We have, sure. we have, everybody's got a camera, everybody can be uploading. And so, you know, we're really visually bombarded um, today in ways that we weren't before. So the ability to slowing down and analyzing, I think is very valuable advice. Um, and so we're, we're coming to, you know, maybe the last five minutes or so of the interview. Um, and maybe I wanted to maybe continue along these lines because as a faculty member at the University of Miami, where you teach a course on architectural photography, you're teaching this next generation of students um, how to compose uh, the work that you've been describing. So what advice would you have for an aspiring architectural photographer, someone who might want to develop their skills and build a successful career in this field? Study art history, number one. Number two, learn the rules of composition. These are chords and scales. Maybe you can break them later, but you need to learn them first. Debussy studied Bach and Mozart. Mies understood classical architecture. Corbu understood classical architecture. Anybody who has made significant gains form givers have all studied what's come before. If you don't, you hit your head on the ceiling really fast. You come back to everything you didn't learn. And then I always encourage people, especially if you're starting out, to be your own client. Where you live should be this little laboratory for your design ideas. So you need to get your artwork hung at the right height. What if you have three pieces of furniture? I guarantee you there's one correct place for those three pieces. Figure out what that is. Be your own client. Shoot all, go out and shoot all the time. That's how you get better by, and being critical, being really critical of your own work. But shoot constantly. Keep, keep doing it. Keep doing the work, but you have to study. 
Yeah, agreed, <laughs> agreed. Um, so maybe Stephen, you know, you 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 produced over forty books, um, and you know, you have a, a kind of probably infinite number of shots talking about shooting all the time, um, but. Can you recall um, a particularly complex or difficult project for you to shoot? I think Jerusalem in the end was the most difficult work that I had to do because I had to interpret in the absence of architecture. Um, all right. So I'm asking this of all of my guests at the end. Uh, Stephen, what's your favorite city and why? Well, I love Detroit for its grit and its soul. I love Rome for the magnitude of its artistic accomplishments. I like Venice for its unique beauty. I like New York for its energy. I like Miami for its lushness. And I like Amsterdam for its enduring sense of human scale. But one city for me has all of those elements in it. And it is still by far my favorite city in the world. And that's Washington, DC. Oh, wow. So no one said Washington yet. So, but I think that collection of images uh, that you at least produce for me when you list um, those cities, I think are, are provocative and memorable having been to many of them. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Um, thank you for um, depicting, recording the world around us and making us see it in a different way. Please join us next week when I will be speaking with Deborah Burke, who is an internationally recognized architect and the current dean of the Yale School of Architecture. Whether you're a seasoned architectural professional or simply curious about how design impacts our world, you will not want to miss this conversation. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or also follow us on the On Cities podcast. Thank you again, Stephen, for a wonderful pleasure. conversation. Thank and you. I will see everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 